You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. Hey guys, thanks for joining us for today's episode. Today we are continuing a conversation that we started last week with Dr. Paul Miller. If you haven't heard that yet, I recommend you press pause here. Go back, listen to that episode, because everything we're going to talk about now is going to require that context first. Again, I'm joined here with my host, Adam Hawkins and Jonathan Dotson. I want to kick us off, right? Last episode, we gave a lot of definitions around, you know, what's the problem? What's what's going on here with with Christian nationalism? And this episode, we kind of want to turn the corner on, on, on that a bit. And so let's maybe start off, you know, in your book, you offer a alternative to nationalism. We kind of addressed in the last episode, there is a, there is some good in a desire to, one, for people to desire the spread of Christianity mm-hmm. in our country. There, there is even a good desire in people wanting to have a, a kind of affection or love or appreciation for the place in which God has put them, right? We talk about, the Bible tells us, you know, that we should pray for the city in which we're placed and we want to seek the city's good and all those kinds of things. And and you you point towards another idea of, of patriotism that maybe offers a way towards that. Could you maybe talk a bit about the differences between nationalism and patriotism? Yeah, Th- and thanks for having me back on the show. Appreciate it. Love to. Yeah, so I think it's important to draw this distinction between nationalism and patriotism. In part because a lot of nationalists will claim that to if you truly are a patriot, you'll be a nationalist, that they're the same thing. If you love your country, you're going to go with the nationalist agenda. And that's not true. And I think that we need to actually reclaim patriotism so that they don't have a monopoly on it. <laughs> patriotism, I think, is, the, is a positive virtue of gratitude. Gratitude for what we've been given, gratitude for our blessings, gratitude for a home that we can call our own that is familiar to us, that has brought us up and given us nurturing, and as one scholar puts it, inducted us into institutional forms of human flourishing. And God commands gratitude. God commands thankfulness for all things. I'm grateful for being an American. I'm grateful for our freedoms. I'm grateful for religious freedom. Grateful we can have this podcast. Grateful that we can criticize our government. Grateful that we get to vote, run for office, whatever. And that that's patriot. And 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 I desire to make it even better. I desire to leave my home better than what how I found it when I when I was born. That's all patriotism. I think everybody everywhere should be a patriot. I think we should all be grateful. Note that I didn't say proud. I think mm. a lot of people talk about patriotism. I'm proud to be an American. Look, I mean, if that strikes me as strange because I did not achieve being an American, so <laughs> I don't know why I'd be proud of it. Maybe immigrants can be proud of being an American because they decided to come here. But for me, I'm just grateful for the gift I received. And because of that gift, I want to give back. And that, I think, is is a, the root of a positive, healthy patriotism that all of us can cultivate. Mm. I love the, the, the word gratitude in light of it. Because e- even as you were talking, I was thinking, too, you know, we work at a church called Citizens Church. And we, you know, one of the things that, you know, the scriptures uses language like our citizenship is in heaven. And, you know, there's different ways that scripture dialogues with that idea. I could I could imagine someone maybe listening and feeling like, well, isn't isn't that still problematic? Like, aren't we aren't we supposed to reject, you know, kind of the the earthly ties and pull towards more thinking about our identity as being in heaven? How is 
how maybe would you describe this being this being different than mingling ourselves in the world, so to speak? Mm. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I I feel like I need to write an epilogue or something to answer this because actually it was a line of criticism in one of the book reviews, and I, I think this is important. And I do defend the idea that we should be patriots and love our countries and be involved in the world. I don't think Christianity calls us to forsake worldly ties. It doesn't call us to be otherworldly focused. It actually says, love, you know, yes, Jesus says, don't love the world, you got to love, but he's drawing a harsh distinction to emphasize the importance of loving him above all else. Mm -hmm. I think through in the totality of scripture, we see that God made this world as our home. He will renew this world as our home. Heaven comes down to earth. We don't go up to heaven. And so our home here is a place we should cherish and care for, understanding that we're not going to build the kingdom of heaven. I know that. But all throughout Scripture, I think we're never given the sense that we should renounce our worldly identities. I am who I am. It's flawed. It's fallible. There's problems with all those earthly identities. So we should never make it ultimate. Ultimately, yes, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Underneath that, I'm an American. I'm a, I'm a, right now, a Virginian, used to be a Texan, right? <laughs> Call myself an Oregonian, actually, by upbringing. And I can enjoy and cultivate those identities without making them ultimate. In fact, I think it's important to do so. It's a way of showing neighbor love. Mm-hmm. I don't love my neighbor by pretending I belong on an ethereal plane somewhere else. Yes. <laughs> I love my neighbor by, by acknowledging I'm here and they next door, they are my neighbor, mm. and we share a common life together. And so let's make that life flourishing and good. And and that requires that I'm invested in this life. I think that's so good. It reminds me of reading Peterson and his uh, biography about being a pastor. He says to to, I'm a pastor, and that means that I belong to a place. Mm. Like you Mm. don't you don't pastor a ethereal people. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) no, I'm in a place with a specific people, with a specific culture. And to do good work there, I have to be a part of the community. Yeah. Yeah. As I think about this and think about an alternative, patriotism being that alternative to nationalism, I love what you said about being proud (laughs) because I do think about that. It's like these sort of accidents of birth. And I I use that term jokingly, but like, you know, God placed me here. I don't mean it that way. But yeah, it's not like if somebody, if I'm seven foot two, I'm not proud that I'm seven foot two. I'm grateful that I'm seven foot yeah, two, right? This was given to me. <laughs> yeah. And so I like that. I like the idea of seeing it as a gift and the idea of gratitude being really important. I do wonder what that means for us, maybe bringing it on the ground. We've talked a lot over the past two episodes, sort of academically. Right. But like, so I'm a, I'm a Christian in a place. The place we're in is Plano, Texas. The place you're in is Virginia. How do I, how do I, be a good Christian citizen at the poll or at the, at the voting booth, Mm -hmm. you know, what's that mean as I consider, and you know, on this podcast, we try to stay fairly, you know, apolitical or apartisan, I shouldn't say where we, we don't, we're, we're not partisan at all, but I do think it's important to say, we talk a lot on the show about the 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 enemy being illiberalism. We we have said that a lot. Yeah. But that's a danger. And so how do I know just you know on the ground how do I know that I'm exercising this gift of voting in a way that's that's not going to you know move me in a direction I don't want to go. Yeah. So I I want to answer that question how how then shall we vote? Right. If it's okay I want to back up just a little bit. Absolutely. 
So the question is, how can I be a good Christian citizen? Mm -hmm. One of the ways is to vote, right? But there's a few other ways that I'd want to emphasize. I think being a good Christian citizen, it means loving your neighbor even in politics. Mm. That means getting involved, showing up, go to your local PTA meeting. I went to a local land use, county land use commission meeting the other day. So very obscure, very bureaucratic, but to me it mattered because they're making plans on how to use the land around here. And I think it's actually a way to love my neighbors is to be involved, be informed, and you know express my opinion. Instead of ignoring the local to be hyper-focused on, oh my gosh, the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel, let's actually get involved in our local communities. That's actually a good way to love our neighbors. So that's a way of being a good Christian citizen is just involvement, localism. I think another way of being a good Christian citizen is to embrace incrementalism. Mm. Incrementalism. We sometimes, I'm thinking right now the pro-life cause, we want to accomplish the big bang that accomplishes perfect justice for all time. Never works. Uh, and we miss opportunities to advance the good in small incremental ways. And I think that we we should embrace that. We should embrace incrementalism. And if Think again, the pro-life cause. That means maybe accepting smaller victories. Look, we just got Dobbs the other year. That's fantastic. But we're not going to pass a law that criminalizes all abortion for all time. We're just not. Mm -hmm. So let's pass smaller achievable laws. Some people are saying, let's go ban pornography for all time, everywhere. I, I, pornography is evil. But I don't want to give the FBI the power to surveil your laptop. Mm. Let's pass achievable laws like one state that mandated age verification for porn sites. And that immediately shut down Pornhub in a dozen states. It did more to limit pornography than all of the talk about banning porn. Hmm. So embracing incrementalism. And that kind of gets me into the how then shall we vote. When we think about voting and we think about our positions on public policy, there are a couple of things that I'd want to keep in mind or a couple of litmus tests. One of them is this idea of, you know, what is actually achievable. I'm reminded often of prohibition when Christians, to advance our Christian values, banned alcohol. And it was a spectacular mistake. It, it led to a decade of gang warfare in American streets. It incentivized the black market. We had to undo it with another constitutional amendment because Christians overestimated what was realistically achievable with the blunt hand of government. Government is not very good at doing stuff. I worked for the government for 10 years, and I have a low estimate of what it can do. I think anytime we want to give the government a power, we ought to expect that the DMV is the one that's going to implement it. Right? It's just not. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the level of expectation we should have of our government. So that was, you know, point number one in, in how then shall we vote is just have low expectations for the government. You know, a second thing to keep in mind is we have a long history of thinking we're advocating our values, but actually we're discriminating against people. I just think again about the example of, of anti-Catholic prejudice. For 300 years, we told ourselves it's a Christian value. We're advocating for Christian values. It was just about Protestant supremacy. That's all. It was, it was bigoted and wrong. And I wonder today, I wonder if sometimes our attitude I'm just getting in so much trouble for saying this. I wonder if our attitude towards LGBTQ Americans verges on the same thing. I, I'll just put that out there as a, as a question or a thought. I hold to the traditional teaching on se human sexuality. I do. But I think that sometimes when we talk about public policy, it feels to me more like we're eager to keep them down than it is 
true concern for liberty and equality for all. So that's just a, a point I'll leave out there. Yeah, that third point on third point on how we, shall we vote is about church and state. You know, let's make sure that we preserve for the church its unique prerogatives to be the sole representative of Jesus on earth. Let's not give Caesar any authority in an area that is the church's exclusive authority. And we Christians need to maintain that Christian value of disestablishment. So that was a long answer, but I hope that's helpful. No, I think that's a I think that is a really helpful answer because it I think part of that, even to the, the very last point that you just described, is it it allows it gives the the church and ultimately again I say the the spirit, the power and the space to do what only God can do without asking the government to to force the hand of manipulating the work of well it's what we you know we talked about this before on on another episode but the the idea of the difference between power and authority i forget who was talking about that but we we were kind of thinking through it and the idea was authority is long lasting it's deep it's cultural Mm -hmm. it finds it's it's like the way maybe you would we would say it in in a different way is it's like a that soft power of like being able to convince one another and influence one another. Whereas power is this coercive thing that the government does and seeing that we've sort of given up on the idea of multiculturalism or this idea that every person has their place in society. Like we make room for each other, even when we disagree and, and instead we're all just really hungry for power. So even I think some of the things you were talking about. So what, what's, what's that ended with? It's like my guys got to get in the white house so it's anti-localism, right, too. We've got to get in the White House. And then we don't pass anything. We just do executive orders. Yep. And we just make people, <laughs> da, 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 you know. And so there is no there is no trying to convince, trying to work with each other, trying to, I, I think, care for our neighbor. Yes. You know, it's more about, to what we said earlier, either preserving our place or, and just all of it feels sort of, even though it, you might be thinking, well, I'm just trying to enshrine Christian values to, to the point about prohibition. It's like, how did that work out? You know, we did this thing by fiat and it didn't work because yeah. that's not what really you didn't take the time to actually convince people into. And, and even there, they were able to pass the constitutional <laughs> amendment, which in all these things we probably wouldn't be able to. So I think the point is asking ourselves again, like, do you does God need the government in order to accomplish his purposes? And the answer to that is no, he might use the government, but he doesn't need it. Mm. And I think we, I think we mess that up sometimes, you know, but it is true. I I will say I am sympathetic, like knowing how to vote on an issue can be hard, you know, and there is so much now kind of pumped at us from talking heads and sound bites and everything else that to step back and try to kind of think deeply about these things can be really difficult, you know? Yeah. So so I'm glad that, you know, even in the voting question, what we didn't do is tell you how to vote sp- specifically on some topic. What we, what we were just saying was like, you know, maybe these principles of disestablishment, some broader principles about, about yeah, against maybe what we were saying with the, the power versus authority thing yeah. a minute ago. Maybe, maybe yeah. the best move isn't always the coercive power of the government when right. it comes to christian ethics even you know can i ask paul a question yeah paul as we go to the voting booth and we think about the next four years or 10 20 years in america are we kind of doomed to an ever-increasing gulf between the right and the left progressivism and populism hardening and really kind of rupturing the country is it you know what as we go what what do you can you look ahead for us you know what what do you think the future holds 
Let me let me reach for my magic eight ball. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to tell at this time. Are we doomed? No, because God is God is providentially ordering all things, right? Are we doomed? No, because the only two laws of history are that nothing is inevitable and nothing is impossible. Now, as a political scientist, I'll tell you the trend lines are deeply worrying. And if we continue on these trend lines, I see a lot of bad stuff coming. I, I would not be surprised to see civil unrest in America this year and some constitutional difficulties. I think that's that's possible. I don't want to be alarmist, but I think it's possible this year. There's The crisis we're in has been building for decades, and it goes way beyond Donald Trump. It goes way beyond one individual. It has to do with demographic changes, the rise of the internet, collapse of local media. It has to do with changes in our economy. It has to do with the, the big sort as we all move to enclaves of like-minded people. And, and on and on and on. The 2008 financial crisis and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I mean, there's just too many things that caused this, which also means it's a generational effort to undo it or to survive it even mm. and to build something better. It really is a generational effort, which is why it starts with the localism, getting involved, loving your neighbor, voting wisely and carefully. I'll tell you this on voting. I used to be a single issue voter on abortion and I have become a single issue voter on the Constitution. The Constitution is my single issue because I believe that the best way to love my neighbor politically is to preserve a system of ordered liberty in which we all are treated as equal citizens of equal dignity and, and liberty. That's the best way I can love my neighbor and protect myself. And I'm alarmed that I don't see a, a party for the Constitution or a candidate for the Constitution. So I, I would maybe just put that out there as one way of thinking about our Civic duty, how to be a Christian citizen. I recognize that there's a lot of wisdom in the U.S. Constitution. It's old. It's a little, you know, there's things I change, but I don't see an alternative out there. I am an international affairs guy. I study countries around the world. The alternatives are terrible. <laughs> uh, they really are. A, a constitutional government. Look, when God governs through his kingship, he does it through a covenant, which is an established relationship with rules, so to speak. That's too, you know, impersonal. But you know what I'm saying there? God's pattern of rule is kind of constitutional in that sense. There, it's a, it's, There's a, a framework for that relationship. And our American life is mediated by the framework of the Constitution. And preserving that is very difficult. It's very fragile. And I think maybe that might be the work of Christian citizenship in our day. Mm. So when I hear you say that, it sounds part of what you're saying is what we talked about a little bit of the last episode, but maybe the battle isn't as much between left and right. You guys get what I'm trying to say, political battle, but it is truly an, an illiberal versus classical liberal when you talk about constitution or not, you know, when you have, is is that sort of what you, is that what you see that it's what it's going to continue? The trend lines seem to continue towards either part, pro progressive or conservative, moving moving less to help enshrine and keep a, a, con a classical liberal approach to governing and really taking this different approach, like you were saying, Jonathan, to populism or, or something like that. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And if, if, if listeners don't like the language of liberalism or classical liberalism, sure. I don't care what the label is, some kind of framework of, of an ordered life together that recognizes the equal dignity of all citizens 
is what I'm getting at with accountable governance under the rule of law, law that applies to the rulers as well as the ruled. Mm-hmm. That's the framework I'm talking about. Yeah. And again, I just can't stress how rare and fragile it is in the grand sweep of history. So let's not throw this out casually. Mm. Yeah, very helpful. I can imagine a listener starting to do some hand ring at this point, you know, as a Christian, not only in your kind of civic duty, but in your heart, how do you navigate the anxiety, anxious thoughts you might have as you look to the upcoming election? Any words for people as they contemplate the future, this whole discussion, what, what should they do with the, the anxieties and fears that might rise in their heart? Well, there's maybe two sets of fears that we might talk about. Quite a lot of Christian nationalism is motivated by, by, by a fear of the loss of Christian power and influence. Christians used to run this country. We don't really run it anymore. And we when we want and we want to get it back, right? That's what a lot of Christian nationalists are saying. And to, to that set of fears, I'd say, as you said, God doesn't need the government to accomplish his purposes. And he has promised to defend his church, his people. He is providentially guiding all things. We're not guaranteed that our particular nation will survive or our way of life or frame our constitution. We're not guaranteed it's going to survive. And But God wins in the mm-hmm. end. And so we can relax a little bit. Amen. And that's maybe what I'd share for those who have that set of fears. For those who maybe look at 2024 and are particularly afraid of the divisiveness of our moment and might be afraid of the things I warned about, I'll say a lot of the same things. God is governing all things. Look, there is a point at which there's a kind of a rational concern that bad things might be coming. And that is a true statement that is not licensed for us to panic, react or lash out with anger. It does mean we might take some prudent precautions, proactively loving our neighbor, voting wisely, being involved, and praying and praying mm-hmm. for God's protection and, and mercy. Oh my goodness, praying for God's mercy. Because it's we don't deserve deliverance from this crisis <laughs> because it's a crisis of our own making. We don't deserve deliverance, but we can pray for God's mm-hmm. mercy, that he would mercifully provide a peaceful way out of this where we can begin the work of rebuilding. I just don't know. I don't have the imagination to conceive how that could happen, but God can make it happen because he is all powerful. Mm. Amen. Amen. I have I have a another question and I I do intend to keep it on the ground where we are. It's kind of long so bear with me. But you end the book talking about the importance and the power of shared story. Um and which I I find compelling and I I mean I know there's a there's even a space where you kind of engage with the idea of some of the the roots of or the biblical roots that Christian nationalists may try to point to is like, you know, look at the Bible, look at, you know, Israel. And, you know, that was that's kind of a picture of that ideal and what we need to move towards. And obviously there's there's fallacies there. Something that I've that I feel like if you wanted to glean anything from it that that's helpful, especially in our American context, is like the way when we look at the scriptures, the way the the Israelite story is told. It's not all perfect. They actually dis- self-disclose tons of really bad things that, you know, the ways that they fell short. And they're really honest about who they were and how they fell short. But God's the hero of the story. Mm. And I and I think even as we've kind of talked through, is there's this grappling for identity. It's like on one side, we want to look back 
and just remember this the all the good the good old days and nothing was ever wrong. We just need to get back to that. And then there's another side that looks back and it's like it was always doomed, always terrible, nothing beautiful worth redeeming. And there's actually another way where we can look back and see the ideals that are worth holding to, see the ideals that rather we fell short or not. That's like, but that actually is something that we should aspire towards. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, to the to the extent of not, you know, lobbing the ball to the state, but as we're conversing with as a family, as we're talking with our children, as we're teachers, as we're participants in our community, the story that we tell about what it means to to be American, being able to acknowledge the good, the bad, the honest truth of who we are, where we've been, and then also as Christians, being able to point towards a God who's able to meet us where we are, despite where we've been. And obviously we know where he's taken us. Like, th- does that feel like like the kind of tangible thing that we as believe for the, like I say, for those believers that are listening and like, you know, how do, how do I start in this direction? Does that feel like the kind of thing that, that we, we should be after? Yeah, you're asking about how we can relearn, retell, and cherish the American story, because that's that's a way forward. I think the story of America that we hear sometimes from the right is triumphalist, self-righteous, even a little belligerent, and very cherry-picked, hmm. right? This is telling narrative of all the great stuff of how great we are. And the story from the left is quite the opposite. It's nihilist. It's here's all the bad stuff about everything terrible we've done. And we, you know, nothing we ever do can ever turn out right. And in God's grace, we can actually tell a true story of how we've had a ton of sin and a lot of progress, a lot of overcoming. And that's a true story that is our story as Americans, and therefore is a story that can bring us together. It's a story that we can tell a story we can learn. Oftentimes we have to actually learn it for the first time because none of us know American history very well. Telling that story, the true story, acknowledging the faults and flaws, celebrating the triumphs and the progress is something that all Americans, Christian, non-Christian, black, white, every background, men and women, can join together telling the story, learning the story, celebrating the story. That's what makes us Americans, and it's wonderful. And in the telling that story, we Christians have an opportunity to share how we want to carry that story forward. What does our picture of justice look like? That becomes a way for us to point to the author of justice and say, look, as great as we are as Americans, we have an even better story to tell than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we have to do but to do that, we have to be embodied and involved and part of the story. Yeah. And I, I think what's so so powerful about that is it, to your point, is it it allows every person to be able to see themselves. Um, in the story, no matter where you may fall, you know, kind of on the plane. Uh, I remember reading, it was an article just talking about uh, how how other countries could learn from the kind of the the restoration of Germany post-World War II. And there was a a leader in West Germany named Willy Brandt and wasn't, wasn't a part of the Third Reich and all this stuff. And it was interesting how there were so many who would wanted to distance himself, right? So there was those who lived in certain parts of Germany that partook in the kind of the evilness that obviously felt that contrition. And then there was others that were like, wow, that was like, that was them. That wasn't me. And he was a part of that camp. But as he took lead and was seeking to bring unity, 
he identified, you know, all German, all of Germany as one. And he has a really powerful statement where he was just saying, no German is void of history. Like, all of us have to take, if we all want to move forward, all of us have to take responsibility. And there's such a, I just think of like us as a, as a church, as believers, we have an opportunity to model first in our own person and in our own homes and our churches uh, a different way. One where we don't, yeah, we don't just have to look back and ignore the bad. One where we don't have to only look to the bad, but we're able to hold the true thing, like you say, to know that there is a another story that is active in the world uh, that's even greater than the American story, right? It's what, what God is doing in the world through Christ, through his spirit in the church. And we get to participate in such a way where we can we can be people who do that, who who take responsibility for this place that God has put us in and to care about it in such a way that not only are we able to seek the dignity of all those around us, all of our neighbors, despite where they land politically, religiously, et cetera, um, and point to a future that makes it possible, gives room and breath for the spirit to still do a work among us. And I think that's that's something that gives me hope. Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully for those of you as you're listening and we're you know, stepping, you know, further into an election year and all that could surely be ahead, that that's given us hope as well as we continue to process and learn. Amen. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from the Good Podcast Company. Be sure to check the show notes to connect with us and our guests.